This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. When we can take the long view of parenting and we can make our choices based on that, we can ask ourselves, you know, is this going to matter in a month? Is this going to matter in a year? Is this going to matter in five years? I think that that really can color our choices so much when we're able to kind of look out over, over a long period of time. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is so in line with this mission and passion that we all share. The show is called The Parent Compass, Navigating Your Teen's Wellness and Academic Journey in Today's Competitive World. And I'm excited to introduce you to two of our guests, our, or both of our guests, uh, Cindy Muchnik and Jen Curtis. And let me tell you about them. Cindy is a graduate of Stanford University and has been working in education for the past 25 plus years as a former assistant director of college admission, high school teacher, educational consultant, and author of five other education-related books. She speaks professionally to parent, student, teacher, and business groups on topics such as study skills, the adolescent journey, college admission, and now the Parent Compass Movement. Jen earned a BA from UCLA and a master's in social work from USC. Ooh, that's an interesting transition there down south, and has been an educational <laughs> consultant and professional speaker for the past 12 years. As owner of FutureWise Consulting, she's worked with hundreds of students on every aspect of college admission process. She's particularly passionate about empowering teens to approach life with intention and educating parents about navigating their parent compass. Of course, they are the co-authors of the book Parent Compass, which we'll be talking about, and they are also co-hosts and co-fellow podcasters of the Parent Compass podcast. Okay, guys, that was a mouthful, and we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So tell us how you guys came to partner together and do this important work as a team. Cindy and I have known each other for over a decade. Um, our field, educational consulting, can be 
a little bit of a lonely one. Um, we, you know, we work with our students, but in terms of other professionals, um, we don't get to interact that often, but it is fun to kind of run things by one another. So we would meet for lunch every so often. And then fast forward to the Operation Varsity Blues mm-hmm. scandal or the yeah. college admission scandal. And of course, Cindy and I called each other immediately, just completely aghast at all of the things that we were seeing playing out on the media in front of us. And we spent an entire day pretty much on the phone with one another, um, chatting not only about that, but also about what we were seeing in our own practices in terms of parent behavior um, getting out of control. And so that led to some really real conversations over the next couple of months. And we realized that we had gleaned so much in our practices of um, parenting behavior, particularly as it relates to the academic realm and how damaging some of that could be to a parent-child relationship as well as the child's well-being. Um, But we'd also seen some parents who had done um, excellent jobs raising their teens in a way that really contributed to their self-advocacy and their um, intention and their grit. And so we felt like we had this message that we really wanted to get across. And that's how The Parent Mm -hmm. Compass was born. Mm -hmm. That's where it came from. I mean, the book literally and, and the concept came from the, um, I want to say tragedy, really. I mean, we're, we've been living with a lot of tragedies. So, But I say the tragedy, as we're going to talk about, which can be a tragedy of um, human development and parent-child relationship through the raising kids to be successful and be competitive uh, college um, prospective students. Yeah, I mean, the book, uh, I think the book was really born that day, but it's something that Jen and I had been thinking about and toying about. And I remember saying to her that day, gosh, you know, I've I've been thinking about writing this book and I need, I want to do, I do it justice in the psychology side of things too. And because Jen had a background in, in mental health, um, as well, it was just a perfect pairing and partnership. I mean, the process together was wonderful. I never could have written this without my equal partner. And the two of us really delved deep into our own parenting mistakes and successes. But also, uh, we consulted with psychologists and other experts, um, thought leaders, heads of school, teachers, school counselors, therapists, etc., to really try to bring the best information together that would support what we're trying to promote, which is this parent compass movement, this sense of, you know, parents knowing not just right from wrong, but, but helping their kids navigate in healthy ways and knowing when to not get into those, you know, gray areas, how to kind of step out of those and self-reflect and uh, parent in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. And, and so then how would you, I, I, you just started, I believe did define parent <laughs> compass, but I want to, you know, let's dive deep for everyone because it, you know, at face value, it's, it's, it's a great uh, concept and so complicated in using this compass, right? So how would you, how would you guys, do you guys describe the parent compass? Okay. So it's such a good question to ask because we just posted about that on our Instagram, the actual definition of the parent compass, because for a year we've been sharing all these ideas with people and we decided to distill it. So with Jen's permission, because I think Jen, you wrote this post, I'm just going to read 
you know, kind of to distill it down what it is, it's a way to check yourself and hold yourself accountable for your parenting behavior. And our goal Mm -hmm. in writing the book was to help parents understand their appropriate role in navigating the tween and teen years amidst this hyper-competitive and academic environment and also in our uncertain world. And so we offer these tools to help parents adopt better parenting behavior uh, that helps their kids develop resilience, self-reliance, intention, grit, purpose, and also to embrace failure. It's a big mouthful, but through the course of the book, we mm. really explore each of these areas in depth, as well as some pretty deep parenting self-reflection. Uh, it covers a lot of the really important things. So a, f- a few uh, just impressions just right away off the bat for me is first off, um, this is why one of the reasons I was so excited to uh, have this conversation with you guys, because this is so aligned with the idea of it all starts with us parents um, and being, you say, checking ourselves, being aware of ourselves and, you know, what are our beliefs? What's triggering us? You know, what's informing our behavior? Are we even conscious about it? I mean, that's just so, so huge. We'll dive in more there. But also that whole list at the end of what you said, like you're talking about, um, as you guys state wellness and wellness and resilience and coping is now finally getting press as the important ingredients of raising healthy adults. And we know like challenge success has been working on that for a long time out of Stanford. Um, but for so long, it was how, and still, for your, how you're, for your kids to get ahead, how for them to be um, the most competitive um, in this world, whether it's to get into college and beyond, and this whole fear mentality that we all get wrapped up in in today's society. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned challenge success. So Denise Pope um, has written the foreword of our book, and she joined us very early in the mission of what we were trying to do. And our book and your center, you know, really align with so much of what the Parent Compass is also trying to teach. But we felt it hadn't been presented in this way before from the perspective of educational consultants who had been, you know, working with these kids in and out of our offices for years and seen some of the successes Mm -hmm. in their mental health and their, you know, self-worth and their ability to self-advocate. And then the others where they just were tamped down and didn't have a voice of their own and seemed listless and unhappy and quite frankly, depressed. And um, while Jen and I weren't, you know, their actual therapists, we noticed these family dynamics and wanted to point Mm -hmm. out both the positive and the negative in the book so that parents could kind of take a step back and go, whoa, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to be certainly those varsity blues parents, but I also don't want to be that parent that's damaged Mm -hmm. my child in the process of trying to just love them as much as I can. And I think that that's an important note too, because we very much understand that so much of what we are pointing out in our book, we, we, in terms of the kind of negative behaviors, we realize do come from love and Mm -hmm. from wanting the best for our children. But then when you take those behaviors and you play them out over the long term and you see the effect that they have on kids' ability to advocate for themselves and live independent lives, um, you know, that's where the problem arises. And that's where we're trying to help parents see now um, how these things are going to play out over time. Mm -hmm. And although we always try to be uh, strength-based, 
it's critical for us to know what are the things that are not helpful. You know, even like what's wrong, what's bad, what's harmful, whatever words we want to use. There are things, there's not everything that's quote right, but there are things that can be harmful over time to our kids in ways that we don't realize we're contributing to. Like that's, as you're saying, like that's the important thing for everyone listening. Um, And, um, you know, I have two kids, college age, gone through this whole process. Like I understand the pressures very, very well. And there are things that our own anxieties, our own pressures, our own voices, our own consultants are telling us at times that aren't helpful or healthy. Tell us what some of those things are. I think something that we see a lot is um, speaking for or over our kids and not giving them the voice that they need, even from an early age to, you know, I said it before, to be able to self-advocate. And that translates to advocating for themselves on the soccer field with their coach or advocating for themselves, certainly in the classroom, seeking out extra help if they need it. Um, And and we as parents can help them to develop that voice over time by allowing them to express their opinions and giving them a safe environment to do that. Um, and by by practicing, by giving them opportunities to practice using their voice. Um, but a lot of times we jump in and speak for them because it's quicker or easier or there's a you know precise point that we want to get across and maybe we think we know better. Um, but we're telling them, inadvertently in doing that, that, um, what they have to say doesn't necessarily matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dan, I have, uh, four children, one out of college, one in college and two in high school. So I'm still in the trenches. And just last week I took my 15 year old to the doctor. And as we checked in, they asked for, you know, name, birth date, whatever. And I started to answer and I went, Oh, And then my daughter kind of looked at me and I just gestured to her and she answered. And it's, it is so easy for us to interrupt and cut them off because it's just habit. And she should be able to tell the doctor what's bothering her. She should be able to order at the restaurant or ask for her water glass refilled or, you know, say hello to the postman and collect the mail. You know, those are, those are things that I I want her to be able to do. And if I'm talking too much, which I tend to do, that's one of my flaws as a parent, then I'm not allowing my kids to use their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Why do we order for them still? I, it's like, it's just this natural, <laughs> you know, when we do that, why do we do that? <laughs> I, it is something actually because of what I've learned as an educational consultant Um, It was something that I made a point of doing when my kids could talk, we would take them to the restaurants and um, they, they, I I refused to order for them. I refused to to even get a a glass of water for them, to even ask for coloring for them, um, because that was something that I had learned in watching some of these parents come in and not letting their 18 year olds speak Mm -hmm. to me. Mm Mm-hmm. I, uh, so what, so one of the, the, the negatives that you're pointing out are the less helpful things is to talk for our kids. You know, we really want to, and, um, you guys write about how important it is to listen and how hard it is for us parents often to listen because we want what's best. We want to get our agendas across. And, and like, I'm thinking there, that also 
this hidden agenda, you know, the going within, the college rankings, the the pressures that parents have. Um, talk about some of those um, visible and invisible ones that end up coming out in your work um, in less healthy ways. Uh, well, let's, I mean, we can start with the rankings since you mentioned that. Um, we we wrote a whole chapter on um, not paying attention to the rankings and, quote, watching your mouth. And the reason is um, we are big proponents of families when they're going through the college search, really focusing on the right fit schools for students. Um, and right fit school means that you're matching a student's um, learning objectives, you're matching students' preferences in terms of location and presence of research on campus. And there can be so many different things that go into making a school the right fit for a student. And it's arbitrary place on a numbered list doesn't necessarily translate to finding that right fit school. And what a lot of families don't understand is that the rankings can be and are manipulated. And some of that has played out in the national news. Um, and so we, we really want families to understand what goes on behind the scenes to produce those rankings list, what those algorithms really mean, um, and then to be exploring schools based on its uh, characteristics as opposed to that list. And then the second part of that is watching their mouth. And um, I think as parents, sometimes we don't understand, particularly as it relates to the college admission process, the biases that we have about certain schools or certain paths for our children mm-hmm. um, and how we pass along those biases in small comments that we might make about this school. Oh, oh only this kind of student goes to that school or, oh, you know, um, and and again, that is looking past the fit and focusing only on a um, li- our own very limited knowledge of what a school might be about. I put example in that chapter about a student of mine who got into a school that um, the student was really excited about, and um, the student went over to his friend's house that um, that afternoon and told his friend. And his mom overheard that he'd said he got into the school. And, and frankly, in my opinion, the school was a very gr- good fit for this student. And the mom immediately said, oh, why would you want to go to that school? Oh, I, you, you, you got better options. And, uh. and lo and behold, the student didn't end up going to that school. And it was heartbreaking for me to hear that story because we, we really do need to watch what we say about, um, about colleges and, and really focus on the fit. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many clients um, pick the more, over the years, prestigious school. Those are air quotes, the more prestigious school. And um, it was a terrible fit. And and they in in our, in our work they, they 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 were pulled to the one they really liked, but they went for the one with the more impressive sweatshirt and bumper sticker and keychain. And we'd actually talk about that. And so this is so important, Cindy. You were going to say something here. Well, I was just going to say actually to add on what you were saying there, but I mean, and you probably saw that same student two years later unhappy with the choice yeah. they made, yeah. um, which Jen and I sometimes <laughs> find, you know, in yeah. our work that we have kids that transfer and it wasn't what they expected. But one thing I was going to say that aligned with something you said much earlier in our conversation, but also with this topic was when we completed writing the parent compass, 
um, we realized there was something really significant missing, which ended up being our first chapter. And our first chapter um, is was a was very challenging chapter to write because it forced parents to self-reflect and look back on their own upbringing, their own educational background, their own birth order, their own parenting style, the way they were parented, the role they played in their own family, whether academically or you know socially, and and how then with a partner throwing a spouse or a partner into that situation too. Now you're parenting a child with these two very different perspectives and and backgrounds. And so we created this questionnaire that we've had our families complete, um, and we've tested them on lots of people. And we've had the uh, parent do their own questionnaire. And there's only one part in our whole book that's really meant for students to read, which is the student questionnaire for teens. And we asked parents to really sit down and think hard and answer what, you know, the best that they can do, what their biases are, and then figure out how to apply those in the healthiest way to their teens. And then the teen questionnaire opens up this dialogue for the parents to sit down. And and some parents have said this, well, how do you get your kid to do that? And, you know, I'm asking them to do some homework. And we found that what actually happened when we were testing this was if a parent said to their teen at the right moment, you know, with probably some food involved and no social media distractions, um, listen, I want to do a better job as your mom or dad or as your parents. Can you help me do that? And the way you can help me do that is if we both do this questionnaire together and then we talk about it. So if you just try this questionnaire, I'll try mine and then let's have a conversation. And what we found was that the kids had a lot to say and were so happy to be heard and validated and that it really did force the parents to kind of redirect or, or rethink their style or the way they'd been doing things. And so, um, you know, we, we found that to be a useful tool. The other thing you mentioned was asking the right questions, um, not just being a good listener. And so parents tend to just say, how was school today? How was school today? What'd you do today? How, how did you do on that test and, and measuring their, you know, progress academically, as opposed to just more interesting questions, which, we list a bunch in the book about, you know, what's something nice that someone did for you today? Or, you know, what was the funniest thing that happened in your yes. day? Or what, yeah. what what did you learn from a teacher that surprised you? You know, something that just is less measuring their, totally. their academic status. <laughs> right. Yeah. Parents. So if you're sick of hearing fine, nothing, boring, you know, like I think those are the staple trifecta <laughs> responses. Check out these questions so you can have some different responses. Um, well, and you, again, reflection and this first chapter, um, I believe you guys talk about this, of like going down memory lane, which I think is a wonderful um, way of looking at this for parents to go down memory lane. I'm curious um, in your work, how many parents have trouble going down memory lane? Because I think it's not always an easy thing to do. Um, I, you know, and, and that's a good point because we do, we recognize, and I think there's even a sentence in that chapter that says, this is the part where you have to be brave. Mm. Um, you know, you have to be willing to look at the way that you were brought up and look at, um, you know, and even if it helps to go speak to a therapist about it and, and give you insight into um, the way that you parent and the way that you were brought up in a safe space, that that might be a good option for a lot of parents out there. But we do think that it is necessary to be able to look back and understand how our own parenting is a reflection of the way that we were brought up and how we're 
impacting mm-hmm. our kids that way. So yeah, I absolutely do think that um, it's difficult for a lot of parents and we point that out. Um, and in fact, many times in the book, we ask parents to be brave and we, you know, we understand because this is all stuff, you know, we've put this stuff out there. And so we do our best to live by a lot of this stuff. We don't do it perfectly by any means. Um, we mess up every single day, yeah. but, um, but it, but it's all extremely difficult to do. I, um, it is really difficult. And thank you for highlighting that, you know, those of us who work in this space still make the exact same mistakes. Um, so just want you know to validate again, everyone to hear that. And, uh, that's how human, um, we are. I had an experience this weekend, uh, with our youngest, who's actually seeing her college counselor today, um, just coincidentally. And, um, we had a situation and my wife and I talked it through and we were about to have the talk. And despite all the planning, I still said the thing that I shouldn't have said in the moment, which was the trigger. And I like, I, I'm like, I cannot believe I just did that. And you know, my wife looked at me like, I don't think that was all that helpful. I'm like, no, it wasn't. And um, the reason I'm telling the story though, is figuring out what to do and not beating myself up too much, which I'm very good at. Um, I just found an opening later to go back and uh, put my arm around her and say, you know what? I'm sorry. That wasn't helpful. That was just a dad thing. And um, I blew it. And the repair is important. And I think, you know, you guys talk about too, I guess this is a segue into, you know, is it ever too late? Can parents make up for some of this um, in um, ill-informed choices or parenting decisions? I think just like I tell teens um, every day, you can wake up and be a new person tomorrow. You can make a decision that you're going to reinvent yourself the very next day. And that happens all the time in the teenage years with friend groups and mistakes that kids make along the way and, and just the process of trial and error. And I feel the exact same way as parents. And I'm so glad you shared that apology because that is exactly what I find myself doing with my kids too. You know, we are human. They see us as human. I think when you do apologize and are vulnerable to them, it brings you closer and it shows them that you're not the boss of them. You don't, you know, you're not perfect and, and all of that. You too are trying to do better. And so I just think this, you know, we laugh because we wrote the book for middle and high school parents, but we're finding even parents with younger kids are like, I want to tackle some of this sooner so that I don't get into these mistakes when they're in these preteen or, or teenage years. So I love the the fact that you shared your apology. And, and I just did the same thing with my 23-year-old last night when we were walking the dog together. I mean, we were out talking and I said something I just shouldn't have. And it changed the entire tenor of our time together. And I said, hey, listen, don't blame me for that. That was a mistake. Let's enjoy the rest of the walk. Let's not have it be ruined by something I said that I just shouldn't have said. I said the one too many. And um, I think it's really healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's so healthy that that therapy and um, counseling is just so much more on the forefront of our vocabulary now. It's There's no stigma attached to referencing, oh, my therapist told me X, Y, and Z, or my class school psychologist told me this, or, mm-hmm. you know, turning mm-hmm. for help. So I think it's great. And thank you for sharing your story too, doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
And speaking of uh, therapy, I was just listening to your rec- your guys' recent uh, episode with a uh, very uh, strong therapy voice, uh, Lori Gottlieb, and um, just a wonderful voice in the mental health space and wellness space. And um, you guys were talking about the importance of relationship, and um, and your book talks about the importance of relationship. And I want to I want to hear about that here and to share. Uh, what that sparked in me was several years ago as a new psychologist and a new first parent was invited to a local public uh, private school to hear a seasoned therapist. Uh, I don't even remember what the topic was. I think it was about actually like building resilience, something like that. And um, I was only there because I had a family member connected to the school. It wasn't even that I was looking ahead. And um, this always stuck with me. She said, and they were, they were, the, most of the audience was middle school and high schooler parents said, the only thing that leaves your house at the end of 18 years is your relationship. Homework doesn't leave your house. You know, achievements and trophies doesn't leave your house. The only thing that's leaving is the relationship and what you've made of it. And that was just, it's to this day, 20 plus years ago, it just still sticks with me. And um, this just seems cornerstone to what you guys are talking about. I love that way of putting it. I'll, we'll, we'll need to borrow that. Yeah. Um, but I, we do ask ask parents in the Parent Compass to, um, this touches on something I mentioned a little bit earlier, but to really take the long view in their parenting. Um, you know, when we're in the trenches each and every day, we're focusing on, you know, what grade did you get on this? Or what, how did, you know, what's your college list going to look like? Or have you started those essays yet or whatever? Um, but really when we can take the long view of parenting and we can make our choices based on that, we can ask ourselves, um, you know, is this going to matter in a month? Is this going to matter in a year? Is this going to matter in five years? Um, I think that that really can color our choices so much um, when we're able to kind of look out um, over, over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Dan, isn't that what we really do all want um, in the end of all of this? We want nice people who are happy and feel good in their own skin. I mean, I think it's a pretty common goal that we want our kids to be doing things that they enjoy. We say in the book, you know, we had our turn. We had our turn. This isn't our turn. It's their turn to make the mistakes, to explore. And we can guide them and expose them, but if we're pushing, pushing, pushing an agenda or an interest or an activity that's not bringing them joy or making them happy, which doesn't mean that even an activity they like is going to be irritating and tiring and annoying at times, but the point is, is that it is their turn. And in the end of it, now that I have you know one that's in the real world and one that's in college, you know, you want to, when you do spend time together, you want to like each other. You want to enjoy the time. You want your kids to want to come yeah. hang right. out with you when this is all done. And I think if COVID taught us anything with all of this togetherness, um, let's, you know, try to embrace the things we like and give each other the space that we also need to just be individuals and go close our doors and, and make our own choices. Absolutely. And um, as we back this up, I think this speaks to what you to also talk about, which is, you know, how to cultivate uh, and accept your the authentic child you have, then create an inauthentic version, which that usually doesn't lead to that 
um, more, more harmonious relationship, nor does it really help a child. So what would you say about this, this creating an inauthentic child versus an authentic, accepting an authentic one? I, I think when we can see our children for who they are, we can appreciate their interests, even though they're different from ours. We can see that they have different opinions, even though they're different from ours, and we don't need to change those opinions. We can just hear them. Um, I think, you know, when we can truly do that, that right there is exactly where that relationship is going to flourish because our kids feel heard. They feel understood. Um, even, even when we don't totally understand where their opinion is coming from, we can help them feel understood. We can help them feel that we respect, um, their, their choices. And, um, and when we don't truly see them, unfortunately we undermine our relationship with them and we can really hurt them, Mm -hmm. um, very deeply in in a very profound way. And a lot of this, a lot of this stuff comes from, I want to say myths or falsehoods, because I want to bring this back to um, research and fact, um, which you guys live in, and a lot of it comes out of Challenge Success. So just for listeners, Challenge Success is this awesome organization um, co-founded by Denise Pope and Madeline Levine, a wonderful Northern Cal psychologist. And um, they've done a ton of research. Um, and just so everyone, since the people who are doing a deep dive at this point in life, Denise um, has been on the podcast in the past a few times. And those episodes, of course, are very aligned with um, with this topic. So just if you want to uh, also go deeper, research shows, and catch me on this, because I, I want parents to hear this, and we're driven by a lot of BS, um, like those rankings are being really important. So research shows that it's not like success is about match and about a person finding their place. It is not about the ranking of the college, the prestige of the college, the necessarily the sports program of the college. Now you might want to go to a school with a big sports program because you love that. That's awesome. Like tell us about what these truths are and what these falsehoods are that drive a lot of parenting fear and parenting behavior that we're trying to move away from. Well, one thing we learned from Challenge Success in our research with them and the data that they shared with us was in our chapter on tutoring. And, um, uh, you know, so first of all, yes, we cannot say enough accolades about Challenge Success. If any listeners are part of a, you know, high school community, um, you know, call on this organization to, you know, to come to your school. They do amazing surveys of parents, admin, students, and they get that dialogue going and they help schools kind of realign and, and, and rebalance themselves to um, preserve the mental health of their students, really, and, the, and then to redefine success, not just as, I think they use this quote that says, um, success is measured over the course of a lifetime, not the end of a semester. And that sort of goes back to what we were saying recently yep. about taking the long view. And mm-hmm. so, um, so the data was showing us in the tutoring chapter. So we, we kind of um, really take tutoring down a notch, and we have nothing against the idea of tutoring and students getting help. In fact, there's such value in it when a student is really struggling in a course. But to have a tutor for every single course your student is taking in school is like having a babysitter, you know, hold their hand through school. I mean, it's it's not doing a service to your student. There's a order of events. You go to your teacher first, and then you, 
you know, maybe complain to your parent a little, and then you find an older student that might be able to help you or a peer tutor at school, or you, you know, go to the tutorial that they offer. And then really then if you're struggling and you haven't found success, you know, then or an understanding, then you may ask your teacher, can they recommend someone to help you? Or will they work with you? Or you then find a tutor for a subject if that's needed with the goal being to wean off of the tutor. And um, Jen, what was the numbers that they told us in the book? Can you recall? We, we put them in the book about um, the percentage of, it had to do with tutoring. And it was sort of the percentage of students that you know really said they didn't need this, that their parent was insisting that they kind of have this to be a measurement and to, to help them with a better GPA for the long run, not because the, the tutoring was something that they actually needed. And so, um, and, and they asked the student, you know, did your parent want you to have the tutor or did you choose the tutor? And um, I don't, I don't have to, I'd have to find the page in the book. It's in there unless Jen can, can come up with it. But the point was that, that, you know, they, they run these numbers and they do these questionnaires and they get this data that is so real and so potent that you kind of say, yeah, why are we right. spinning our wheels here? Right. The race to nowhere. And I will add to that um, another truly important thing that I think is really pertinent to this conversation that also comes out of challenge success research is the idea that it matters more what a student does in college than where mm -hmm. he or she actually goes. And that is yes. by their research. And so I think that that's yes. something that parents really need to take to heart. Um, and that, that statement actually comes toward the end of the book for a reason. That's sort of where we want parents to be, be left. You know, that's sort of some, a lasting impression that we want to leave on them because, um, it is backed in research and all of this pushing a lot of times does have to do with name. And we think that there's better opportunities at the, at the name brand fancy schools where that's not necessarily the case. If your student goes to maybe a smaller school where he or she's going to be able to have um, faculty mentors and hands-on learning opportunities and get some real experience that's going to make him or her employable upon graduation, that could be a much more valuable experience for that student. So um, yeah. really keep yes. that in the back of your mind as you're um, walking alongside your student during the college admission process. So important, everyone, what Jen just said is that, and I'm just going to reiterate it because this is so, 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 so key. What your child does or your young adult, emerging adult does in college is far more important than where they go. And, yeah, that's, and, yeah. yeah. That's the challenge success white paper that came out within the last mm -hmm. year and you can read it. Yep. It's, it's not long. It's really, you know, interesting and meaty and, and, and that, that is right from their data. And a little more data for people, because I found this uh, helpful and I found this data helpful and work with my uh, clients and parents. So um, check for you guys to check. It's showing that about about one out of three students across the freshman students across the country, and of course it varies between different colleges and universities, but about one out of three does not return for their sophomore year on like a global scale is different research that I've been seeing, which was astonishing to me. Um, and the reasons cited are anything from depression, anxiety, perfectionism, overachievement, substance use, internet addiction, uh, 
um, executive functioning challenges, or just not ready. And and so part of this is to normalize. Like there's something that's going on. I think when all of us were going to school, those numbers were much lower. Um, and also to let people know um, before you guys weigh in here that I've worked with many of these kids that or young adults that like there was the most important experience of their life for it not to work and to work on themselves. And they come out okay. The vast majority of the time, stronger, more resilient people just on a different path than they thought they were going to be on. Yeah. So Dr. Dan, um, our final chapter of the book is being open to alternative routes for our kids. And we felt that was so key to be the bookend. Um, where parents understand that to have college just be the goal um, is narrow-minded because there really are lots of other alternatives, um, including taking that gap year, which lots of kids were forced to do because of COVID, but lots of kids needed it in in different Mm -hmm. ways. Um, But also um, either starting college a term in or doing an internship and some travel Community college is a great choice for many kids who didn't really like blossom maybe in high school, didn't, didn't, um, you know, they all evolve at different times. So maybe they need just a little more to kind of get their confidence and, and get, you know, maybe some more improved grades under their belt to have different options if they want to, you know, go beyond community college. Some students do apprenticeships, some join the military. Um, you know, there's really a, you know, a slew of other choices. Some go straight into the workforce now. In fact, my son, who um, went away to college for six months and then COVID hit, decided to take a leave of absence his sophomore year. Um, he shared with us, like, I do not want to spend a year doing college online on my computer. And so I'm going to go live with some college friends. I'm going to continue my summer internship. I'm going to work. And then I'll just go back the next year. And we had to pivot and it ended up being the greatest decision he made amidst kind of everything that was going on. And so now he's kind of going back to school, energized and excited to be back and ready to be back. But, but with just, you know, the rules are different. I don't think that, you know, everything fits into a neat box the way we felt it used to. And Nowadays, when you say mm-hmm. my kid's taking a gap year, you know, a generation ago, that might mean, ooh, you know, something going on. Now it means good for them. Good for them to have a year to kind of process yep. the last four years. High school is hard, no matter what, no matter what kind of student you are. Those are really tough years. And, um, you know, taking a break and, and, and pushing the pause button can oftentimes be the best thing, we, the best gift we can give our kids to allow them to do that. And I think on the tales of COVID too, um, this year in particular, gap years were a, a, a pretty, you know, plausible option for a lot of students who um, wanted to kind of reevaluate where the college admission process might have taken them. Um, and maybe they didn't have the choices that they thought they were going to. So I, I hope that it only normalizes things, um, mm-hmm. normalizes a gap year even more moving forward. Mm-hmm. And those who economically are able to take time, um, you know, because sometimes there are some other constraints on staying in college. I don't know anyone who said, I am so glad I got out in such a limited amount of time. I know more people are like, God, why didn't I take that fifth year? Why didn't I take that gap year? Like once you get, once you're done, you're done, right? You're like in it, you're in life and it just keeps going. So if there is a way to elongate this 
process in a way that is consistent with growth um, and engagement, I mean, that's a win, win, win all the way around. That first year out is pretty brutal when it, my son has just felt like I've been in school my whole life and now I'm working and wait, this is what I was <laughs> going to school for. So he's working in education um, as a teacher so he can stay on the school schedule and has decided he wants to go back to be a student again as soon as possible. You know, he likes being a teacher. He's going to do it for a couple of years, but he also wants to go back and be a student again. So, you know, yeah, if you can prolong the real world, that's, yeah. that's not bad either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my uh, my uh, our niece was over, who's a uh, recent graduate and well in the workforce now for dinner. And she was telling uh, our high school senior, "Don't listen to what they say. Stay in school." Like who said? Who? No one told told me it would be like this. You know, like we 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 like we shoot for graduation, and then it's like careful what you ask for. Yeah, <laughs> I would argue that that transition, those couple of years right out of college, are possibly the most difficult life transition. Agreed. For sure. I think the other might be having your first baby. <laughs> if we want to fast forward, <laughs> that's a pretty difficult life transition. <laughs> I will only agree with that for you. I Yes. I, uh, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, having observed oh, that's a that. Di- that's a different uh, yeah, Dr. Fair. Dan show. Yeah. That's not yeah, today's different show. Different show. Okay. <laughs> Okay, thanks for refocusing. Um, okay, but we're we're moving towards the parent footprint moment question. Before we get there, um, what are what do you want all the listeners, your clients, your readers to to take to really take home? Like you know that we're all overwhelmed with stuff. Like what are these? If you could focus on one, two, or three things, what are those key messages? Um. I'm a really big believer in tangible reminders. I, I, I just, I really like to employ them a lot. And um, one of the devices that we use in the book is talking about earplugs. And I, um, I actually have a little basket of earplugs in my office and I hand them out to all of my students um, at the beginning of my work with them. And, and my point is that I want them to um, you know, maybe tuck it away in their backpack or throw it in their locker or whatever, but use it as a tangible reminder to throw in those earplugs and focus on their journey, not everybody else's journey. And I think likewise, I would encourage parents to kind of metaphorically throw in their earplugs, focus on their child's journey, um, focus on what makes their child special um, and unique and uh, uniquely them, um, and focus on what makes their family special, um, and kind of to, to really make an effort to drown out all of that noise that leads to this competitive parenting pattern that we're talking about, um, and, and instead, uh, really stay their own course. And maybe my addition, I agree with that one, Jen, 100% would be something we said earlier about being brave. Um, If you build your own village of just a couple like-minded parents, you don't need many. You just need a couple that, you know, you can bounce things off of. And a lot of times that's best done through a book club. Um, Jen and I have been really pleasantly surprised that the Parent Compass has popped into book clubs around the country where, um, you know, a group of moms and or dads or a combination want to self-improve and share, you know, get into the trenches together 
and share how hard this is and try to use the parent compass as, you know, we have a whole um, book club guide that can be downloaded off of our website for free at parentcompassbook.com. But also in future, uh, the, the new printing of the book just came out and the book club guide's in the back of the book. So if, you have, if you're a veteran reader or have an older copy, you don't have the book club guide. But that being said, um, having this group of like-minded parents that are not competitive parents, but that are parents that, like you, want to self-improve can really help you. It's like having someone next to you on the park bench that um, you know can listen out for your kid and you can listen out for theirs. And you can share the war stories and you can share the successes and be genuinely happy for one another, not competing with one another. Nice. So put on your earplugs, try to try to stay away from the distractions, focus on yourself internally and parents, find your people, find your tribe and uh, those who share your beliefs. And I love that this parent compass movement is happening around the country um, of health and wellness at the forefront. This is awesome. Okay, parent footprint moment questions. Are you guys ready? You're so oh, no. right. I I, uh, I changed <laughs> I changed yeah. halfway through. <laughs> I, I love did. it. I, when you said that, I was like, "Oh, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to yeah. do that." You but, never um, know. But I did. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me ask the question to frame it, and then we'll see what comes out. Uh, okay. Tell us about a time that you had a new awareness about yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, or those you love and care about. Jen's going first. Oh, no, I'm she's sure. deferring. Jen or Cindy? I'll go, I'll, yeah, who's, I'll, yeah. I'll go first. That's okay. Right. Jen's first. Um, okay, so um, having switched gears from what I originally <laughs> was going to say, um, I, I think I'm actually going to choose a moment, a parenting moment, um, where I really realized something about myself and um, had to make some some changes. So my older daughter years ago, um, when she was really little would have, she'd be working on art. She loves art, always has, um, she'd be working on an art project and she would make a mistake. She would, you know, maybe draw a line where she didn't want it to be. She had an eraser, but she didn't want to erase it because it had to be perfect. And, um, I specifically remember a moment where she had a full blown, tantrum um because she messed up her line and at the time you know with my background in mental health I was aware of the words that I used um when moments like this came up and you know normalizing mistakes and that was always something you know when I first began became a parent that I that I wanted to employ in my parenting but yet these types of things were still happening and it really, it really became very clear to me that um, I can use the words, but that's only part of the battle. And the other part of the battle is my own modeling. And mm. I realized um, that's so me. I don't throw tantrums <laughs> at this stage, but um, but I I am so upset if I make a mistake or if I mess up and I have difficulty moving on from it. And, um, mm -hmm. so much of what I was seeing play out in her was my own modeling. And so, um, I'm still not perfect at it at all. Oh, well, and there's that perfect word. 
Um, but I, yes. <laughs> but I do really try to be aware of not just what I'm telling her about making mistakes, but how I'm truly modeling in my own mistakes. Awesome. Awesome. And I will say as a fellow perfectionist in recovery, um, that the goal is to be perfectionistic about not being a perfectionist. It's a total, <laughs> it's a total, this is such a trick and a conundrum, but just having that awareness, Jen, like you're talking about, even as you talk about it is so key. So I completely relate and thank you for that. All, All right, right Dr. Dan. So here's my confession. Um, I have, I have a problem. I have a, uh, a, a problem and an addiction to technology. And I write about it with Jen in mm. chapter six, the hardest chapter we wrote for the book about technology. And I have an unhealthy relationship with it. Just like I'm addicted to sugar, I'm a bit addicted to tech. And I try to tell my kids, well, it's for my work and it's for the book and whatever it is. And in chapter six, we talk about the time, which happens pretty often when I've got the computer going and my phone going and you know, earbuds in my ears and a lot of technology, you know, 360 degrees around me. And my daughter, um, at the time was probably 13, came up to me and had to put her arm on my hand, on my shoulder and like turn me physically away from the screen and take my earplugs out and put my phone down and say, mom, I need to talk to you. I need to have a conversation and you can't be distracted. And now she even has put one of those timers on my phone that tells me, how many hours I've spent on different <laughs> apps and different technology. And, and it's embarrassing wow. because, you know, this is the generation that should have more of the technology problems and I'm the one who, who has them. And so what it taught me was, um, you know, about trying to have those tech-free times, which don't always happen, but trying to um, disconnect more so that you can connect, you know, physically um, but also to try to take, you know, these breaks. And so not just when you go on a vacation and a book that inspired Jen and I, um, called 24 six was written by Tiffany Schlain, um, from the Bay area who wrote about taking a tech Shabbat from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. In fact, she'd be a great guest on your show. Yeah. She, um, yeah. she has spent the last 10 years unplugging with her family for 24 hours and she writes about it. And, in my own small way, I'm going to try because of my daughter and my kids and that I'm not modeling good behavior. They have way better tech behavior than I do. And they're, you know, in the generation that grew up with the phone, wow. you know, on the umbilical cord. So I need to work on yeah. that. And, um, and I'm, I'm trying, that's the best I can say. I'm a work in progress. <laughs> you're aware, you're aware. I love that. You guys are so <laughs> aware and it's what you're um, putting out there to everyone is this awareness of, who we are as parents and people completely matter in how we raise our kids and what they see us doing and what we tell them and how we listen to them and um, for that self-reflection as you guys talk about. So you guys, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Uh, tell everyone, again, where they can find the new, the new version of the book, the podcast, your writing, um, everything that you guys are doing. They can visit our website, which is www.parentcompassbook.com. We are also on Instagram at Parent Compass, um, on Facebook at The Parent Compass, 
Um, and then they can also, um, all of the podcasts and everything and um, articles we've written and a bunch of resources are all available on, on that website, parentcompassbook.com. Wonderful. Jen, Cindy, thanks so much. And thanks for what you're putting out into the world. And I love that this is a book club book about um, basically how to raise healthy, well kids into adults. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Dr. Dan. Thanks for what you're doing too. And it concludes our show, everyone. If you liked what you heard, share it. Help us spread the word on health and wellness. Be that person you want your child to become. Subscribe to the show. Be a part of our community. And I'll leave you with the guiding question. I ask myself every day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.